The Insurance Coffee House is hosted by Insurance Search. Insurance Search provides executive recruitment services to insurance companies, brokers, and insurtechs in the UK and across the United States, attracting and retaining the most successful leaders to your insurance business. To find out more, visit insurance-search.com. The Insurance Coffee House, the place where you get to meet and be inspired by the most successful insurance business leaders from across the world. Hosted by Nick Hoadley, CEO of Insurance Search. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Tony Camara, who is the Chief Talent Officer at Westfield Specialty Insurance. Tony's in Atlanta, Georgia today, and great to have you on the show. No, I'm I'm honored to be on the show. I, I, I'm a listener too, so. Good man, Tony. Well, that always helps. People who have listened to the show before as you'll have a good idea of what will be coming for you today. Before we get into that though, Tony, as ever, as we are in the insurance coffee house, what is your go-to coffee of choice? I'm going to answer slightly differently just to be different, but I was in London last week. So as you know, when you travel from the US to London, the first day is a bit of a a tough mm. go. So in addition to being my coffee of choice, it was kind of a lifeline. Black sheep coffee, vanilla latte is what I will go with. I'm with you on the black sheep coffee. Not sure about the vanilla latte. Each to their own, Tony. Each to their own. Fair enough. Tony, would you start off by sharing with our listeners a bit more about your personal background and your career development path? What's led you to the role you now have there at Westfield Specialty. So out of university, I took actually an unpaid HR job with a small tech company that turned into a, a full-time role. I was kind of their first HR person. The executive yeah. assistant was the previous recruiter benefits person. And, and that was pretty formative because it was a figure it out kind of role. And that thread has kind of led me through my career, either consciously or unconsciously at times. So I started in tech moved to publishing when there was still a publishing industry, moved back to tech. Then my first insurance experience was at MetLife, amazing company, the biggest company I ever worked for. And quite frankly, I figured out, well, I learned a lot there. I figured out I'm not a big company kind of person. I, I don't like staying in my lanes. I like to have Greenfield. So I left there, went back to tech for a bit. That company sold to a company called Sybase. And then I took an interview at Axis Capital, my first specialty insurance experience. They were just under 300 employees. I remember sitting in the lobby and looking at the annual report and turning to the receptionist and confirming, so you just have 300 employees. Yes. And then I'm looking at the annual report and the revenue, and I'm like, this is different from kind of the PNC that existed within MetLife. And then interviewed with one of the, he's still a great friend, the head of property there. And he talked about the business and what he wanted from HR. And I was just like, this, this is perfect. It's all about mm-hmm. talent. So I spent a, a long time there, nearly eight years. And then the one of the principals that used to be at Axis went to a company called Endurance, and he brought me over. Endurance at that point was in the, kind of a reboot of their insurance. So it wasn't a startup, but it had elements of that. And we sold the Sampo about midstream. I was there through all that transition. We bought some companies. Same gentleman brought me to Westfield Specialty as employee number two, which we'll never get old to say out loud. (laughs) And the two of us sat in a room that first week and kind of formulated a plan to build a business. And now we have, um, you know, about 160 employees in the U.S. And we just acquired a syndicate from Lloyd's 
that puts us over 350 employees total. So a great career journey through technology, through some large insurance businesses, in some some startup opportunities as well. And now in this business, so you were employee number two as the as the chief talent officer. Could you give me a little overview on your role there, your responsibility, how it's gone since yeah, going from employee number two and to where the business is now? So chief talent officer, so everything HR. And I mean, to give you a sense, Westfield specialty is part of Westfield, which is, a, we're actually celebrating our 175th anniversary as yeah. we speak right now, which is really cool. It's a company that has about 8.5 billion in gap assets, standard lines, some small and middle market commercial, surety. So they have elements of what I'd call specialty business, but mm-hmm. they're closer to standard lines. So when we were formulating kind of the operation, specialty, as you know, is it's just geared inherently maybe a little bit differently from, from that core business within Westfield. So we took the philosophy, if it faces the business, we're probably going to build it ourselves. If it's something that's foundational, like for instance, you know, statutory reporting in the U.S. In my world, payroll and benefits. Yeah. You know, in in IT worlds, it might be infrastructure and data security. We'll leverage Westfield, but if it's mm-hmm. if it's going to enable the business to scale and succeed, mm-hmm. we'll build our own operations. So as we sat there, the two of us in that room talking about it. Chief talent officer became HR, everything HR. Yeah. And then since there were two of us, there wasn't, you know, there was a lot to divide up. So I also got marketing, <laughs> which has always been a passion of mine. And I view HR as marketing, truthfully, if you're doing it effectively. And then I also started with facilities. And then we've kind of crowdfunded that since because facilities is geared a little bit differently from those other functions. And quite yeah. frankly, it's not nearly as much fun. So my responsibility right now is to kind of assist on facilities, lead marketing, uh, and I'm hiring multiple people there to kind of help out. And then everything in the HR realm, minus again, what I'd call the, the you know, the core specialist functions like mm-hmm. payroll benefits, HRS. Yeah. So the role has certainly developed and grown during that time, presumably to start off with, you had quite a blank canvas there being uh, the chief talent officer of two people. So was that early days about putting together a, a sort of a strategic vision and working together for how that the business is going to look and how that business is going to grow? Yeah, it was. You know, it started with, I remember literally in the plane ride out, I was, I created our comp structure, which again, isn't necessarily purely strategic, but it's pretty important um, as you think about hiring people. We sat down and laid out an initial vision, mission, and values statement. Mm-hmm. And then we started to get to the tactics of strategically, okay, how do we want to grow? And I think that the, the basis of that was create a U.S. platform that was diverse, that had, you know, that certainly had opportunities. You know, we're in the hardest market still, I think, that has existed in some time. And some of those lines are at different points in that journey than others. But, you know, at that point, we basically you know, decided, okay, we're going to do wholesale property. We're going to do wholesale excess casualty. We're going to do um, E&O, a suite of E&O products ranging from, you know, tech, miscellaneous, cyber, lawyers, professional, a little bit of architects and engineers. So kind of offer a full platform there. And then two D&O products, financial institutions and management liability. And again, at that point in time, all of those were in, you know, positive pricing atmospheres. And since then, things like they always do have evolved. That's it. A DNO is under some pressure. Most, the most pressure of all that. And property is, you know, oh, to be a property underwriter right now. You know, there's a lot of opportunity there. And that was kind of the design. 
is spread our risk. It's a fairly balanced, it was going to be a fairly balanced portfolio. And after last year was our first full year of operation, and we just did under 300 billion in revenue. And I know, Tony, an area that you're quite passionate about, and it's particularly pertinent to you, is around being you know, very much part of the business as a HR executive. Would you like to explain a little bit more about that? I'm sure some of that refers to the fact that you know, you're employee number two in the business, and there's not too many companies who start out like that. Could you maybe expand on that a little bit further for us? I mentioned kind of how I started out in my career. To go back to that, I was in university. My dad was an engineer. So the first, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Started in engineering. It was miserable. I mean, absolutely the worst thing that I could have done. <laughs> um, so kind of traveled around trying to figure out what I wanted to do. So I start that yeah. first job at a tech company, recruiting C++ engineers and electrical engineers and radar engineers. And I'm like, I hope they never find out that I like made an F in like my fourth version of calculus. <laughs> But it was very informative because you figured out, you know, and you do recruiting. You can recruit for anything if you're curious, if you Mm -hmm. engage with the business. So that became kind of, for lack of a better term, my brand as I spent all my time managing by walking around, asking questions, some of which were informed, some of which were probably not incredibly intelligent ones, but they all led to the same place. And that became how I operated to the point where at some places that I've been, you know, Nobody knew that I was in HR. They, they thought I was part of the business. And I, I, I'm passionate about that because, again, not everywhere, but you see many HR people, like we interview a lot. And I'll always ask the question, like, tell me how you interacted with HR. Mm-hmm. And often, more often than not, I'll get the, the comment, like, I don't even know who my HR person is. That's the function that's responsible for ensuring, in my view, the success of the business. And if you don't know who they are, how how can you be successful? It's, you know, it's a double-edged sword there. So um, mm-hmm. I, I think it's really important to be as informed and as visible as my underwriters, as my claims people. And again, going back to my comment, HR is marketing. You're marketing the, the company, the opportunity, mm-hmm. the leadership, vision. Um, so you have to understand everything that leads to that and it has to be aligned. I think that's a great point about, you know, HR being marketing, particularly in a sector like insurance, where there is no physical product that's being manufactured. It is the people who are the company and it's the people who drive the growth of the business and the standards, being able to market, to be able to attract the best talent, to attract the, the highest performers, those A players to the business, that's going to lead to the growth almost as much as you know the traditional marketing out to customers and, and agencies and brokers. Yeah, agreed. And you know, yeah. ultimately, I think in the talent market we're in, every interaction is an opportunity to kind of spread the word. Even if you know, I've had people that I've kept touch with for 10 years, never offered them an opportunity, and then something pops up. And you know, all of those conversations over that time frame yeah. lead to the point where at least they're willing to listen. And, you know, so many, so many HR practitioners don't even know the talent that's out there, you mm-hmm. know, and, and I think that's a real challenging place to be in any environment, but particularly in the environment we're in now. Yeah, I think that often falls to the business managers or the hiring managers, you know, like to keep pipeline going. Sometimes that challenge can be if the HR is more siloed, that there's some conflictions there where they've got a nice talent pool that they've nurtured and then, you know, a role comes up and then, you know, HR goes in a different direction. That can be quite frustrating, I think, for all concerned. So that's very interesting. Would you say, I mean, in terms of initiatives that you have there to either 
attract talent or you know build up those talent lines what would you say are some of the initiatives that have worked well for you i view it in phases so this first 18 months has been you know largely about talent acquisition i mean we went mm-hmm. from two to 160 here in the us really quickly so it's been about you know you know making sure the selection process you know stays intact and i mean we we keep it pretty simple but you know lots of places make simple complicated I mean, we really spend a lot of time on, again, is there alignment? If we're hiring underwriters, they need to subscribe to kind of our version of underwriting, which I don't think is that hard. We, you know, we manage relationships. We we're creative in terms of how we look at risk and we want to be responsive. And, you know, the thing that we hear a lot from brokers is and not picking on any companies. I think this is in the nature of how strained companies are, but people aren't getting callbacks, which, you know, how, how simple is that? And, you know, we're small enough and agile enough that we can make sure we do that. And we kind of operated, we purposely constricted our broker relationships because we didn't have the technology to kind of open the full pipe up. We'll get there. But I think that's been helpful because if a broker calls us, we're getting back with them, which again, sounds silly, but lots of people aren't doing it. So, you know, I think being real selective in the hiring process has been the kind of phase one. I think we're slowly, we're going to continue doing that, but we're entering a different phase where, you know, people's development over the first 18 months, I mean, everything is greenfield here. We're putting in an underwriting system. We're putting in underwriting guidelines. We're defining our process. So even as some, you know, as an underwriter who has four or five years, they're part of that. So I I think that's given us development opportunities that have kind of happened organically. But as I think about the next phase and kind of how challenging it is to retain key talent, you have to continue to pay attention to people and offer them what I'd call more planful development opportunities. So I think we're starting to go to that phase. And, you know, are we, you know, number one, you know, again, basics. Are the lines of communication open? Are the comp messages, which we're dealing with right now, consistent with people's contributions? Do they see what the opportunity is, even if it's not as clear as if we had, you know, 10,000 employees and these defined lines of career? But, you know, what's my next step? What can I learn next? And then with the high potentials, again, do more robust targeted development and not one size fits all, but spend time with the management team and say, okay, person X has done this, this, and this. What's the next step in their development? If we don't have an idea as to how to accelerate that, let's go find something, whether it's a mentor, whether it's um, you know an old-fashioned sit-down for a week, whether it's special assignment, you know, now that we have the Lloyd Syndicate in the future, I could see, you know, giving particularly younger professionals exposure to Lloyd's, that's a big deal. So, you know, thinking everything's greenfield. So it's like, mm-hmm. let's not constrict ourselves by where we were before, but we, you know, we can kind of do whatever we want within reason and and make sure that we're placing the right bets there um, with key yeah. talent. And how do you go about doing that? Because you talk there about, you know, bringing in that those A players, those high-performing talent, retaining that talent as well. In order to bring on that talent, you know, you've got to have a, a big talent pool of potential candidates for an opportunity so that you can be selective. You know, we sometimes work with clients, we see clients where that talent pool is very small for various different reasons. And they they say they find it hard to attract you know, the A players, but it, the difficult thing is the pool is so small, so they're limited by who they could bring on to the business. And it becomes a case of just bringing anybody on to fill that position. When you're yeah. building high performance like that, how do you go about gaining that wider talent pool? Because, you know, there's a lot of other 
you know, insurance companies there in the US, there's other companies operating in similar space. Going from two to 160 people is an incredible effort, especially if, you know, the market and certain underwriters in that market won't be so aware of what you're doing compared to some of the competitors. What's been that key success? Well, I think it starts with, we get a lot of credibility from our leadership team and their, you know, their networks and their reputations. Mm. And then, like I said, we, we probably, if there were one, one thing that I would want to kind of grade ourselves a, a little bit more challenging on, most of our marketing has been what I'd call guerrilla marketing, which makes sense, 18 months. But in a weird way, it's helped because since since I'm doing it, it's been definitely tilted toward talent. So within the talent realm, I think people know who we are in the U.S. and the U.K. is going to be it'll be a little bit different. And, you know, we just kind of acquired the syndicate. So that'll that'll trend, you know, and we'll be aggressive there. But I think to your question of there is definitely a supply and demand issue with talent. So even if you're all that and everything more, you don't have 20 people to choose from. You might have two. Mm. So I think a couple of things. One is when we started the company from an underwriting standpoint, we operated under, we need to get to the market as soon as possible. So we were like 45 days, we're underwriting. People mm. thought we were crazy. We did it in 45 days. Actually, we did it in less. I think we have a similar view with talent. So when I find somebody or when one of my talent folks finds someone, the message is we need to move because if they were a passive candidate, if we wait 10 days, other people have found out about them. So, you know, not sacrificing quality for haste, but always having haste and being transparent with candidates, I think is important. The other thing I'd say is what we found was you know, certain levels of talent within, and I'll use underwriting as an example, there's a huge supply and demand issue. And price, the price of that talent has escalated to a point which to me is still stunning. Like I'm like, I'll look at it sometimes and be like, I can't even believe five years ago where someone like this would have profiled versus where they are now. So early days, we looked at that and we said, okay, we'll still hire people that have like less than 10 years of underwriting experience, but we're going to accelerate our internship and trainee program and grow our own. So you sacrifice probably some early end productivity for that. Mm -hmm. But what we always found at other places was, I mean, some of my best employees, some of which are here now with us, were former interns or trainees at other companies that I've been with. I joke with them. They're like, why are you nice to me? I'm like, because I'm pretty sure I'm going to work for you someday. There's some truth to that. I mean, I think if you do those programs right, Somebody with three years can can underwrite like they have six or seven years and you've trained everything about that. So you don't have to kind of deprogram out of where they came from previously. So I think you need to be agile. You need to be hasty. You need to be transparent and you need to sell the whole opportunity back to that comment around marketing is it's not just the pay. It's not just the title. It's, you know, it's the, it's the opportunity here and it's the atmosphere. And I think we're different from other places, including other startups uh, because of, you know, 175 year old mutual company behind us, the leadership team and the growth that we've seen in a short amount of time and, and you know, a focus on profitable growth, not top line growth and hope for the best. Absolutely. I think you make a fantastic point as well about speed and it, it's not about denting the quality of the hiring process. It's identifying those A players, the highest quality talent, moving quickly with them. I imagine that as you're so you know, intrinsically within the business, as opposed to being siloed or having, you know, very different 
uh, departmental structures. You know, you can move quicker, you can get sign off quicker, you can make offers quicker, you can get interviews going quicker. Everything that plays into advantage when it comes to hiring those A players. Your business is probably severely impacted by what I'd call bureaucratic hiring processes. Mm. You know, I've been part of those and I've I've tried to I've tried to condense those because you can't, you know, in any market, you can't tell a candidate we'll get back with you in two or three weeks. You know, number one, they start to fill in the space of why it's taking so long. And again, some of that may be perfectly reasonable within a large, you know, carrier or broker. But I think, you know, we tell candidates, like, here's going to be the process. When we get to the end of the process, number one, you know, we don't view an offer as a, you know, as a Christmas gift that you unwrap and surprise, here it is. We pretty much vetted everything. And then, you know, we'll tell someone, look, we're going forward for approval. Uh, you know, I'll get back to you in a day or two, and and it's a day or two. You can make them wait two to three weeks, but that's they're not going to be the good ones, right? The good ones are not going to be around in two or three weeks. They're still around in two or three weeks. The wrong people yeah. at that stage. So. Or you get a candidate that, quite frankly, already has a view about like why did this take so long? I mean, again, you want you want that to be at least close to the best experience they have. Yeah. Maybe getting promoted yeah. is better than that. The value of that first impression, you can't underestimate. Yeah, it's a very similar sales process of what you have with your customers. Time kills deals. And if a candidate starts thinking maybe they're interested in somebody else, or maybe they're not very fast decision makers at this business, you know, how's it going to be when suggesting changes or I want to get something for sign off, it's going to take a long time. They start thinking very differently. So very, very important. Tony brings us nicely onto the espresso round now where, you know, the questions are short, sharp and to the point. Are you ready for the espresso round, Tony? I'm excited for the espresso round. The espresso round. Tony, what one piece of advice do you have for senior executives or insurance leaders who are coming in to interview with you? I would say this is advice for anyone because I've seen it at all levels. I, you know, my view of the interview process is it's a conversation and, and curiosity for me wins the day. The best underwriters I know, the best claims people I know, the best actuaries I know, you can name any function within the industry are inherently curious. So I'm sure you've looked this through. You'll have someone who has this amazing resume they won't ask a single question through the whole discussion. You'll get to the end and go like, okay, here's your time to ask questions. And you get a dial tone. Yeah. I mean, I just have to say like that, that shows me you're not really invested in the process or, mm. you know, a whole host of other things. I think being curious mm. is so it's the lifeblood of the industry. So that would be my advice to anyone is it's your interview. You should get your questions answered as much as I get my questions answered. Yeah, absolutely. And I can certainly see it even more so from your side, you know, with actuaries, with underwriters, that's certainly part of the role as well to be curious. Tony, what's, uh, you, you've obviously sat in a lot of interviews, I'm sure over the years, what's perhaps the worst things you've seen or one of the funniest answers you've ever heard uh, given in an interview? It was my first HR job. Early days, I would, you know, if people couldn't interview in the morning or afternoon, I would take them to lunch because again, I treated it like a conversation. So I had a candidate who unfortunately had a dental appointment. He was partially sedated. So he had his wife drive him to the interview. He then invited her to the interview lunch with me. What am I going to say? No, at that point, you know, I was was (laughs) like two years experience, less than two years experience. And then since he was sedated, he threw up 
at the lunch table. So that was hands down the worst interview. And I, I felt bad for him. He should have canceled the interview, but it was just, I went yeah. back to my office, turned to my boss and said, you know what? I'm going home for the day. Yeah. <laughs> goes, What's going on? And I go, I just got thrown up on it. Literally. That's, that's my story. I imagine he didn't get a job. You know what? I felt really bad for him. We, I, I called him and we did have a second interview. He did not get the job, but oh. not for that reason. Yeah. It was a strange play. Tony, we've discussed some of the great things that have worked really well at Westfield Specialty with you. If you had just one piece of advice to other HR executives in the insurance world, what would that piece of advice be for hiring great talent? Get to know what talent is out there. My view is, you know, I'm, if I'm filling a position, that's one thing, but I'm kind of always recruiting, or at least maybe it's not, maybe not labeling it recruiting. Networking is the mm -hmm. way to go. Yeah. I think understanding fundamentally why people stay where they are, what they do, what they're passionate about, that that just pays off in a multitude of ways. And again, just being visible, like being visible with your own talent, you should be visible with everyone's talent because there'll be a day where maybe that's the perfect person for a role or a company that you're at. Absolutely. Networking is so, so key. Very much on the people side, on the technology side of things. Do you have a tool? Do you have a piece of kit that's working really well for your talent attraction process? We're pretty low tech from that standpoint currently. I think that'll change. So when we came into Westfield, they had a legacy system. We use elements of that, but quite frankly, I've got two VPs of talent here in the US and now a new team in the UK. We rely more on what I call elbow grease than I do a technology from a talent standpoint. It, as we mature, that will obviously change and evolve. Yes. I think we've focused a lot of our kind of technology efforts on the core business, you know, an underwriting and claim system through billing, and yes. we'll get to the talent piece. Final question, the espresso round. Is there one lesson that your job has taught you that you think everybody should learn at, at some point in their life? I would say alignment with where you work is really mm -hmm. key. And just like, you know, we talk about as HR professionals, the reason people leave is largely mm -hmm. their boss. Sure. My piece of advice, and probably it wasn't a mistake I made because I had support elsewhere, but working working for somebody who doesn't get you or support you ultimately is is probably not worth it. You, you mm -hmm. need to find a place where you have that. And I think lots of people, and again, you know, corporate structures evolve and you, you can't always choose your boss. But if you're, mm -hmm. if you're super patient and that's still not happening, I, I would say this mark, this talent market is so um, robust. You should find yeah. that place. Life is way too short to swim upstream. Thank you for that, Tony. We've almost reached the end of our time together today. As ever, it's gone very quickly. Tony, do you have one piece of closing advice for our listeners? And in terms of Westfield, how can people reach out about opportunities there? And what are the opportunities of joining a company like Westfield? Closing advice, again, when I, when I think of the HR space, I think be comfortable playing outside your lanes. Again, at a lot of companies, they narrowly define HR. I, I don't think that has to be the case. Be part of the business as, as I led with. In terms of Westfield specialty, what I'd say is, so we have the syndicate, we, you know, we closed roughly two weeks ago. So it is, it's syndicate 1200, amazing staff. You know, again, we're bigger in the UK than the US, which is kind of stunning to me right now and exciting. Yeah. 
So I think there will be opportunities there, but it's early days. Um, in the US, you can always reach out to me. My underwriters make fun of me how often I'm on LinkedIn, but it's part of that whole effort to get the word yeah. out about us. Um, you know, as we evolve, we'll have a more robust website. One of the areas that I really want to impact this year, uh, because our website's more of a landing page, but it was fit for purpose. So I would say we're going to have a lot of opportunities. We currently have the five lines of business in the U.S. that I talked about, the whole syndicate. Um, we have a couple programs in the U.S. as well. We're looking at expanding into new lines of business. I think we'll look yeah. at opportunities in the U.K. In addition to the Lloyd's distribution model, yeah. we will build a company model that'll sit alongside of it. So I think opportunities are plenty and some of them will be posted and some of them will be driven by, you know, if you're talented and you're recognized in the market, that's a conversation we want to have. We're very opportunistic. We wouldn't be where we are right now if we weren't. So I would say reach out for a conversation if you've liked what you've heard around the culture and kind of how we operate. There's probably a discussion to be had there. A great takeaway is that networking side of things. So if there's anybody out there who would be interested in potential opportunities at Westfield, have a look at the website, but also start networking, start reaching out to some of those underwriters, reach out to Tony, start building those relationships and you see what opportunities will come ahead. Very fast paced, growing business, both here in the UK and in the United States. So there'll be some great opportunities for sure. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Really looking forward to following the journey there and seeing the further growth that I'm sure that you're going to achieve over the next few years. So thanks again for being here on the Insurance Coffee House. No, I appreciate it. And thanks for what you do. I enjoy the podcast. Thank you for listening to the Insurance Coffee House with Nick Hoadley. Join us next time for another episode packed with insights and advice for senior leaders, C-suite executives, and ambitious insurance professionals. Stream all episodes at insurance-search.com.